Welcome, everybody, to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where you will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now let's dive into today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. I'm honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. And we are going to go a little bit outside of the avatar of the Business Creators Radio Show on the surface, but not really. It's been my belief in my almost 20 years as being an entrepreneur and business creator myself that we can learn some of the best lessons that apply to our businesses by looking outside the box. Yeah, it's great to read books on business and marketing and copywriting and all that. And that's absolutely awesome. It's great to read books on leadership and management. And I found that some of the greatest inspirations that I have gotten in business come from my avocation, which is studying history and reading biographies of, of world leaders. I'm one of those people that putting me on the Wikipedia is a dangerous thing because I can read one article, and by the time I finish that one article, I have nine separate other articles open in separate browser tabs, and each one of them has its own funnel of rabbit holes beneath it. So I can be a sponge for that information, and I can stay up very late on a work night getting into that. So for that reason, I was intrigued by the opportunity to share with you some interesting information on the changing marketing and growth trends of the U.S. auto industry. You're saying, wait a minute, Business Creators Radio shows for mostly small businesses, 300K and up, three to 10 employees. Okay, that's maybe the focus of our avatar, we have plenty to discover here, as you're about to find out. I just came off a riveting green room chat with today's guest. His name is Matt Moore, and he is the creator of something called Dealer Peak. So I'll just tell you briefly about him. Matt Moore has spent the majority of his life in the automotive industry in a variety of capacities, graduating college to go on and work for enterprise-level car dealerships around the U.S. He is now the owner of the Gawiki, if I'm pronouncing that right, then he will correct me, I'm sure, Auto Group in Yuba City, California, and the founder and CEO of Dealer Peak, one of the nation's leading automotive CRM technology companies. So now we're dealing with marketing, we're dealing with uh, looking at vehicles, we're looking at CRMs. These are all topics relevant to you as business creators. And on that note, Matt Moore, come on in, the weather's fine. Hello there. Good to talk with you today, Adam, today. Absolutely. And likewise. And and you got to tell me, did I pronounce the name of your auto dealership correctly? It's Givicki Auto Group. It's a family owned dealership. Uh, last name was Givicki. And uh, that's uh, the name that's still with it. It's a legacy, uh, three generation legacy at this point. Oh, nice. And that's spelled G-E-W-E-K-E for anybody who's binging the Yahoo out of the Googles wanting to see what Matt Moore's day job is. So this is very interesting stuff. I'm 
interested to discover more. Before we do that, though, we like to do here on Business Creators Radio, let's take a quick step back and discover more about Matt Moore, the man. Tell us a bit about your journey, your personal journey uh, or your business journey, whatever is appropriate. And what in your personal experience has brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion, making a difference for your community, market and audience. Well, I'll kind of speak to a little bit more of your audience. Um, take me way back here. Um, All right. And uh, back in 93, 92, 93, uh, we were just finishing up with college. And me and some college buddies started a company called Environmental Energy Equipment. And it was a small company out of Sacramento. And what we did is we had a retrofit product that went on to air conditioning units and could increase the efficiency of those air conditioning units anywhere from 20 to 40%. And as you know, in a, a certain areas, certain markets, that's a massive dollar amount of savings. And so we met with the owner of this company and invested a lot of money and time into it. And uh, as we all know, environmental law came along um, and they made R12 refrigerant, R22 refrigerant, um, basically a bad thing. And that pretty much took our invention and our product and the money and time we put into it. Um, made it obsolete overnight. And so uh, carrying all that debt, um, I was driving down the road trying to figure out what we do next. And um, really, I always, I grew up in the car business, knew I could make some good money in the car business. I had to pay back that debt. I pulled into a Ford store and that started, restarted my career in the car business, believe it or not. Wow. That's, you know, that's quite interesting. And it's funny how our, uh, our life stories take paths that we weren't necessarily expecting. If you'd have told me back in uh, 19, excuse me, the year 2000, which was 20 years ago, that I would be sitting on my balcony in Las Vegas, Nevada, conducting an episode of my podcast, which is one of the longest running entrepreneurial podcasts on the air today with over 400 episodes, from my laptop, through Zoom, uh, using a simple Logitech microphone, and having two separate brands that served the small business market, I would have thought, wait a minute, I just was forced to quit a job and now my life is ruined because now I'm gonna have to explain a three-day gap on my resume. Oh no, what am I gonna do? So my whole background comes from having paradigm shattered at first and then later on, wielding the sledgehammer to do some of it. So that's part of what we do here at Business Creators Radio, which is why we're very happy to have you here. So let's get into some understanding of what's going on here today. With a market size that's currently surpassing 750 billion and everybody wanting a piece of the pie, uh, let's get into your software first off, which is called Dealer Peak. How does Dealer Peak CRM software level the playing field to allow the smaller independently owned dealerships to compete with the larger enterprise dealerships across the United States? In other words, the people where I found my very first car, my 1988 Camaro, which I still miss. <laughs> well, uh, again, to answer that question, I think that you always follow the money and in technology, uh, typically, you will chase for the whales first. Who's willing to pay the most for the technology that you have? And in the industry, since, again, the collapse, uh, when the industry, auto industry, recognized finally that the internet business was a true business and they had to get into it, 
um, most of the CRM companies cater to these enterprise data or enterprise uh, dealerships like the OEMs, uh, you know, a Toyota store, a Ford store, whatever it might be. And so they created these elaborate uh, uh, technologies to try to support uh, these these big groups, these OEMs. Um, they started with obviously uh, websites and then they moved into ILM, which is Internet Lead Management, which then naturally progressed into CRM, which is uh, uh, Customer Relationship Management. Well, in doing that, um, just like always in the car business, it doesn't really evolve much. Um, and so what happened is it became very expensive for uh, the smaller dealer, the independent dealer to participate. And so uh, as they always, they're the mavericks, the smaller dealers are the, the mavericks of the industry. Yeah. Um, they don't have free traffic with uh, OEM or, or manufacturer representation. So they have to drive their own traffic. They have to be have a unique offering in the product that they're offering as well as be able to try to communicate to the customer without the sophisticated technology that was available because they couldn't afford it. And so as we've grown through the, um, the evolution of the franchise business, we realized that uh, we got to make this available not only to the smaller independent store, but also to the smaller franchise stores that can't afford some elaborate technology. So we decided to chase a, a model, which was uh, let's make it available for the independent user, the one user, all the way to the most uh, elaborate uh, enterprise software that you could ever imagine in the car business. Yeah, and I think that that's, especially with what we're seeing with the democratization of information dissemination. Uh, you know, I remember back in the 1990s when I got my 1988 Camaro, I bought it from a small dealership that was actually owned by my, I believe it was my first cousin once removed, if I remember correctly, somebody in the family. And this is a one of those little dealerships you found along the side of the road where they got their inventory from car auctions. And uh, they really measured the margins on every single sale because this is this was speaking of uh, somebody's paycheck, somebody's kids getting a meal. So it was really, really tight industry. And I, before I landed on buying the car from him, I went to all kinds of these little dealerships to find these third generation Camaros. Uh, I mean, we're right in the beginning of the fourth generation of the Camaro, but I really wanted the third generation. And uh, trying to persuade these folks to just let me take that 1987 IROG Z around the block, even though I wasn't sure I was going to buy it today. Just let me try it. Maybe, maybe I fall in love with it so much I come up with the money. But challenge with these places, they had one person working. They couldn't afford to do test drives unless the person was pretty much guaranteed to buy the car. So I didn't get to drive. I didn't get to play with a lot of Camaros. And I think that speaks a lot to how tight some of the margins are. Now, what's coming up, if current trends continue, as I understand it from you, the consumer's car buying experience is going to simply be an online experience to which I'm going to interject. And I'm going to say, hell no, I ain't buying shit until I've driven it. That's just me. Because I got to know how it feels to be behind the wheel. I got to know if the seat contours to me. I want to know if I, if, you know, if it has the road hugging experience I like. I want to know how it feels to have one hand on the wheel and the other hand on the shifter, even though they're all automatics these days. And I got to see the in-dash GPS in action because that is key. And I also got to look inside the little uh, container between the seats to see what kinds of plugs I have because of technology i'm not buying something because i saw it online but just, yeah, that said a lot of people will so how does this pose challenges to traditional auto marketing 
Well, what's so crazy about the auto market is I can really say, I get challenged all the time. Nothing's really changed. The only thing that's changed is the way the consumer wants to be communicated to. Now I can share with you, it's all just buy low, sell high. Um, you yeah. just buy the product and you sell it for more than you paid for it. It's that simple. Now you've got to find those customers and communicate to them the way they want to be communicated to. And so it, it to share with you about this paradigm shift of people buying online, um, I can introduce you to these these younger, we won't even call them millennials, you'll talk them I generation that's showing up. Um, their consumer habits are completely different than yours and mine. And you buying your 88 Camaro, um, they're not brand loyal like they used to. They're not driving what their grandpa's car was. They're not buying what their dad's uh, brand was. Uh, they're intrigued by technology. They're intrigued by uh, sexiness and new. Uh, a Tesla is is one of the examples of this. And believe it or not, they've never been really taught the mechanical reasoning that maybe all of us may have been taught. And a car to them is something that they get into and go from point E to point B in. And right. so what's happening is that impulsive buying that habits that they have when they now bought TVs, they've bought, uh, you know, their, their skateboards. You can say that you can, anything that they've bought in the past, they're actually going to bring into the bigger purchases um, and automobiles as well as homes, believe it or not. And so if that's the case, uh, you better have a vessel in which you know how to communicate to that person and be able to sell them based on the way that they want to buy. Because I agree with you, most people in my environment aren't going to want to buy a car without touching and feeling it. But there are consumers right now entering the marketplace right now that are blindly buying used cars and and getting them delivered to their house. That I mean, that is that is something. I mean, if I found say a 1976 chrysler cordoba cherry red paint and a white velour top and rich corinthian leather 444 barrel because uh, my dad had one of those and i thought i got an extra 15 grand i'll buy this clunker see if the uh transmission holds up more than six months you know better, better luck than he had with it uh maybe in that case because there's only so many of those to go around so i can see that and especially when we deal with antiques specialties uh collectors niche cars and you mentioned the tesla in some cases they're really buying based on wanting to have that particular brand and those considerations may override well is absolutely perfect because i know people who have bought teslas i know some who love them and i know some who feel that they've they've never been ripped off worse in their life so uh it's hard to say uh that being said you know you do raise a good point that you know there's me i'm not going to buy anything unless i drive it I, and i made that point abundantly and graphically clear on the other hand there are some that will in fact buy a car sight unseen so and what again, it goes it goes back to the motivator more than anything. Um, uh -huh. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, no, 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 go ahead. It's it's the it's the motivator, and people are motivated by different things. And and if it be the brand they're motivated by, if it be uh, a performance they're motivated by, if it's safety they're motivated, by, it's a comfort. Um, there's different things they're motivated by, and the number one change um, in the industry is as most people are, are motivated by fear and more so by the fear of the experience of buying the car. Um, they've heard these oh. horse, horror stories of the old salesman, and they even use them all the time, like, oh, you sound like a used car salesman. And it's yeah. um, and they're terrified of walking in a store and 
having that loud clown and being forced into a decision they don't want to make or five hours of sitting down in an environment and they've been there with their parents. And so they're fearful of an event. And it's kind of like uh, getting a shot. The shot doesn't normally hurt. It's the anxiety of getting the shot that actually motivates them. It's kind of interesting. And so because they're motivated by the anxiety of buying the car, they're willing to go ahead and buy it in a different fashion. And they're willing to communicate and go through that process differently than um, the generations before them. That's an interesting thought. And yeah, you do think of the old fashioned car salesman. And before I got that Camaro, I remember going with my dad and uh, he insisted I take a look at a Mustang, although what I really wanted was a Camaro. So uh, you know, the dealer, the, 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 the salesperson came out and, you know, the biggest mistake that I recognize uh, that my dad made is he let the guy hold his case. He let the dealer hold his case. And we basically almost had to call the police to get the keys back because of the tactics they were attempting to use to force my dad to buy me the Mustang. Exactly right. So yeah, that, that put that puts you off a little bit. And then there's another time uh, when I already had the Camaro and, I, and you know, that was my college car. So now I was starting to think about my post-college car. Went to a different dealership, uh, met with a salesperson. I, you know, at, you know, I said, I want to I want to test drive that car. Uh, and I told the salesperson up front, you know, I'm probably making a buying decision within the next 30 to 60 days. I'd like to work on that decision now so that uh, when I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. I really like that car. I really want to just, you know, make sure that, you know, for good reason, I want to just have a brief conversation with you about what I need to do financially to be able to afford that car so I can come back with the money. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yes. Okay. So, uh, so the uh, salesperson took me out. Uh, we did a little test drive. And when I get back, um, her sales manager starts lecturing me about how, uh, they don't have time for people to just come in and joyride their cars. And he actually followed me to my car as I was leaving and made sure I left the parking lot. And I didn't even say word one to the guy. I did not directly communicate with him. All my communications were with the sales representative I was dealing with. But he, hey. decided, he decided to treat me as the enemy. So, yeah, I'm going to have a little bit of concern about buying something sight unseen, knowing that guy might still be working in the automotive sale industry. Yeah, but more than anything, the people that you've shared that with uh, as you've gotten older, uh, I've heard those stories amongst many other stories and how yeah. many how many movies have been out there and they're just terrified of that experience. The other thing that we're finding in in these younger uh, consumers, as well as I would say all the way into uh, 40s and 50s, is there's a lot of people have created a new identity for themselves on the Internet. Um, they've created this Facebook identity. And, you know, they're strong as nails. They know everything in the world and everyone yeah. around them endorses what they're all about. And they've actually lost the ability to be face to face with anyone and be genuine. And they're terrified, oh. terrified of being called out um, because they're not who they are. So it's easier for them to go through an online buying experience because they can be that person behind the scenes that's, you know, whatever they want to make themselves up to versus going in a car dealership and probably having to show some vulnerability because of the ignorance they have with how much a car is worth, how much their trade is worth, what their credit is, what the, what a payment, how a payment is calculated and yeah. all the other things that are go along with it. So it's easier for them to hide behind the, the web or hide behind the communication. Um, and so they're willing to sacrifice really the touch and feel of the car because wow. they're trying to protect their identity. 
this is like a master class in modern day buyer behavior. So I, I get the point. And what I was what and what I would add is I've told you a couple horror stories, but in my recent few experiences, because uh, I you know I'm now on the fourth vehicle that I've leased, and I can tell you the last four experiences I've had with car dealerships are cars due to be, cars due to be turned in, so time to go get another one. Uh, I had a, a 2017 Mazda 6 Touring Edition. It was uh, just a few months ago, uh, like sometime, I think it was like June, July to 2020, something like that. I can't remember exactly. And uh, the battery in my key fob died. Now with push button ignition vehicles, what happens when the key fob battery dies? You're not getting in your car. Nothing happens. Yeah, exactly. Because, because the security loop is interrupted, you cannot start the vehicle. So I managed to play with it till I got the car started, drove it up to the um, drove it up to the dealership where they uh, replaced my battery free of charge. And I thought, you know, while I'm here, I got to turn this thing in, in three months anyway. Let's just see where I'm at on the possibility of a trade-in. So uh, I told him I just need two minutes of somebody's time just to see what the current options are. I'm, I'm leaning towards just getting the updated version of this vehicle. And they found a salesperson. He came out, shook my hand. We had a brief conversation. And I said, uh, and I said to, to him, you know, I'm really just here. I'm not ready to turn this thing in. I haven't even taken it to be washed lately. Uh, I just wanted to uh, get the conversation going. And he said, and I'll tell you what he said to me. Ready for this? He said, uh-huh. Would you like to see the 2020 Grand Touring Edition? It's like he knew that all my protestations that I was not leaving there with another vehicle meant that I was leaving there with another vehicle. So what I've discovered in these past four experiences is whether they're given the formal training or whether they study it on their own, these sales representatives have become very skilled using things like neurolinguistic programming and the power of influence and persuasion. And since I study that stuff and use that stuff myself, I find myself immediately on the same wave on the same wavelength with them, where I actually have conversations with them about what they're doing and they just sort of nod. Right. Yeah. Well, no, that's exactly right. And so it really at the end of the day, um, uh, I would say that the older consumer is being trained by the younger consumer. And so more so than the baby boomer influences grandkid is grandkid is more so influencing the baby boomer at this point in time. And so if you don't have the proper technology and the proper ways to be able to communicate to those customers, um, you're not going to be able to survive in an industry like the car business in the next few years. And so that's what our, our technology really focuses on is giving the tools necessary not to just the big enterprise dealerships, but more so for, dude, there's, let's just talk at, there's 44,000 independents as it relates to 15,000 uh, franchise stores. So there's three times as many independent stores than there are franchise stores. And why wouldn't you give them an opportunity and give that market the opportunity to communicate to the customers the same way the franchise stores have? Yeah. As we move into that topic, I just want to make one final observation. And this occurred to me a while ago. I want to get your thoughts on it because you're in the industry. Uh, you know, we told the horror stories about the uh, manipulative uh, used car salesman to, you know, stereotype where they assume that the customer is stupid and can be pushed around. And what I described in my past four experiences, the best way I can describe it is now the sales representative assumes 
the buyer is smart and plays to that. Without question. Yeah. And with all the data that's available to these consumers, transparency is the only way you're going to sell them cars. As a matter of fact, uh, I always like to pitch that truth equals gross. Um, you're going to make more money the more honest you are with them and then the better product that you give them. And so long and short is the industry has changed uh, where you're not making your, your money on ignorance. Instead, you're making it on information and the proper communication and pure transparency. Yeah. So aside from what we've already discussed, what are some other new tactics that dealerships and the overall industry are going to need to focus on in order to remain successful in their marketing efforts? And let me add to that and have and, and allow you to challenge us if you choose to do so. Uh, cars just last longer. I mean, in the you know, even when I was uh, first buying cars, if you had a three-year-old car, that was somebody else's problem. These days, if you have a three-year-old car, it's just barely broken in. Without question. And yeah. um, I can share with you tactic-wise um, is really not, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's more of, let's just let's take it to three different buckets. Uh, you have your current state as one bucket. And let's just say that a car dealership is 20% effective in their current state. Then you have to move it to a desired state, which is 40% efficient. How do you do that? Well, you take it from your current environment and you put it into a computer and where all of the data is going into a computer, where all of the customers, uh, one point of entry, one point of communication, one point of marketing, one point of measurement, where one area in which a, a dealership, no matter how small or how large, all the input data is going into one place and all the activity is one place. Once you've accomplished where everything is going into one place, you go from a 20% efficiency to, to a 40% efficient because now you have lead awareness. And once you have lead awareness, now you can go to 80% efficiency by putting intensity and the proper marketing behind that 40%. So instead of you be running a very inefficient model, you're able to move yourself with spending less money on spray and pray advertising, which is conquest advertising, and actually taking care of the customers that you're in your own PMA and taking care of those customers and the activity, people already raised their hand to do business with you. And then after you've got a hold of that data and that communication that they raised the hand to do business with you, then you market to them very specifically based on where they're at in the buying cycle. How is it that we can assist them in that buying cycle or in their service processes? Yeah, and I think that makes a, a lot of sense. So rather than get a hold of somebody's keys and basically hold them prisoner, uh, you can easily turn an inquiry into a buy. Like I mentioned, I, I went up to the Mazda dealership six months ago and, uh, the, the, and the, car, the representative assigned me said, uh-huh, would you like to see the Grand Touring Edition? And we're actually, during the test drive, we're actually discussing neuro-linguistic programming. And uh, and I'm explaining to him all the things I notice he's doing to move me into leasing the new vehicle. We're having a good laugh about it. And yes, yes. I, le and yes I leased the 2020 Grand Touring. <laughs> make, it, make it worth your while. To yes. Know exactly right. Yeah. But, but, but throughout, it, throughout it, I think he understood something about me is, and I think he perceived this, this is just a, a trend in my decision-making capacity. When it comes to things like that, I like to make the decision as quickly as possible and just go stay the art and look to keep it going as long as I can. I'm like that with computers. When I go to restaurants, I frequent the same couple restaurants 
and I get the same damn food every single time to the point where they see me walking in the door, they start preparing it. <laughs> so he exactly. sensed he sensed something in me that he sensed something in me that even though I wasn't saying it out loud, he knew and I knew that I really was hoping that'd be the only trip I'd have to make to a Mazda dealership for three years. And if he could make it worth my while, I was ready to get back and sign the paper and drive home. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas somebody else might not be somebody who can be persuaded that quickly. So now let me give you some data points real quick. Just some real quick data points. Your example. So I know that you are, let's say a 36 month lease, you're at, you're at 33 months. Yep. I know um, based on our system, if you're coming in my service department, that you're an equity in your vehicle based on based on where you're at. Now, let me share, let me share with you what that means. Okay. Inequity doesn't mean that you have equity as it relates to the value of your vehicle. Right. It means that based on if I have rebates and incentives that are available to me on the new model that could take you out of your car with the final payments that are left, you have three payments that are left. Yep. And be able to then get you into a new vehicle for same payment or less, most customers will take advantage of that opportunity. So with the data, as I say, being in a centralized area, I know that you're coming in for service. I know that you have uh, so many miles on your car. I know that you only have three payments that are left. I know what that payment is. I know what the value of your vehicle because that's available to me. I know that your service experience can be just a little bit better or I won't even say better, could be more advised by having a salesperson come meet you over there and basically say, hey, would you like to take a look at your options while you're waiting? And we already know ahead of time before you come in how we approach your situation so that we can service you based on what part of the buying cycle that you're in or the ownership cycle. Yeah, that's very profound. So if I came in uh, so let's say tomorrow I take my 2020 Grand Touring Edition in for some sort of routine maintenance. And, you know, I've only had the had it for six months. I've just gotten used to my payments. Uh, you know that I'm probably not going to drive away with another vehicle. So you're not going to waste the time on me. Or you make sure you have a great service experience because you know that you're going to be coming out of that vehicle within 30 months. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I mean that too, but uh, you know that I'm not at 33 months, you know, the equity thing isn't there yet. You know that I'm just, I've just barely finally gotten a seat adjusted just the way I like it. The chances are nil that I'm going to be swayed by a rebate to uh, just drop the car and take another one. So you're not going to send the sales rep to me. You're going to send the, uh, you're going to send the happiest possible service rep to me to make sure that I have an awesome time in the service department. You're exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Right, right, right. So yeah, so in the case of the person with 33 months in, you're going to take care of them, you're going to give them great service, but you're also going to get them nudging towards, yeah, you know what, what if I didn't have to come back for service, and I just had a new car? Or better yet, as you're sitting there in the service department, I send you a doggone text message that says, hey, while you're waiting, would you like to look at the vehicles that you could buy across the lane for the same payment or less with no cash out of pocket? And you, wow. push a, you push a button and you're able to go ahead and shop online, every vehicle, used, new, everything that's available to you that basically is swapping cars with you based on your current equity position. Wow. Then if you click that activity that you have, when you click on that activity, all it goes is that central data area so that we then can go and know that you would consider an F-150 or a, a truck now. 
that you would consider a SUV now, that you would consider something else. Now I have an applied behavior that I can have a very specific marketing event triggered. So I can go ahead and put that information in front of you that might influence you to come do business with me later. Makes it easier for you to do business with me later. See that? That see that's something. So, what would you say about a guy who's on uh, who's leased his third Mazda six variety of something, whether it's a touring or a grand touring edition? Would you assume he'd go for another one? But that you don't know because you yeah. may have gotten married. You may have uh, had a kid. You, I mean, who knows? You, you may have had empty nester. You had a kid, and now you don't. Um, COVID, uh-huh. made, COVID made bought a trailer, and now you need something to pull the trailer with. You just don't. You can't make those assumptions. What you want to do is you want to allow the consumer to have easy way for him or her to know what's available to them. Then you grab that data based on the activity, and then you create a applied message to them based on the way that their activity, the way they're looking at things. Yeah, um, I, I set that up. I set that question up the way I did um, on purpose because I wanted to have you challenge what I just said to illustrate that your software is not about just saying, well, he keeps leasing the same type of car over and over again. Let's just find him a similar one. So your data actually gets more forensic and you look at potential changes in my situation. Uh, am I suddenly making more money? Am I suddenly making less money? Uh, have I gotten married? Have I gotten divorced? Uh, am I in a midlife crisis where I might try and squeeze into a Miata? Who knows? You may be. You may have that car because your credit was not so good because you got divorced before that. Yeah. And now you have the ability to rebuild your credit and you have the ability to go into a different vehicle. Playing God and us assuming what your what your needs are is not the way we're going to sell you a car. It's giving you the ability to easily shop and understand what your position is and making it easy for you to raise your hand to do business with us. Right. So how do you get that additional information from the person? Is it um, industry statistics? Is it something that they participate in themselves actively or passively? Or how does that work? We do not recommend any buying of any data. What we do is we recommend taking care of your customers and making their data your data. By uh-huh. uh, basically, you sell a customer a car, they're going to service with you. They phone into the dealership, they text in the dealership. They everything is in one profile. Your whole lifestyle of uh, relationship with that dealership is in is within the your profile. Based in that profile, we should identify you as a customer so that we can give you a unique environment, a unique experience. And so if you are just a fresh customer coming into the dealership, you're going to be just that, a fresh customer. But as you build up that profile, so if you don't buy the car, you try to trade in a car. Um, I didn't make a deal with you. I still have your trade information. I know what your payoff is. I know what your monthly payment is. I have an idea what your credit status is. Can I still keep in touch with you based on what you're looking for? Awesome. Okay. So it's all based on data, a centralized data source. And that's what the big, the big hurdle is in the industry today is all this data sources. There's so many different ways a dealership is being managed by so many different technologies. And what we're trying to do is reduce all that technology dependency down to one data source, one place that a customer can do everything. Yeah, I'm wondering the, to the extent to which we've already answered the next question, but I think there's still be more hanging out there. So the answer to the next one may be sort of a roundup, sort of a repetition, or there may be something new. Only you'll be able to tell us that. So let me go through it. 
Uh, the idea of using CRMs in the automotive industry, of course, is not a new concept, which begs the question as to what makes your system, Dealer Peaks, software design so unique? Uh, so does it provide the business owner employees with new capabilities? Does it rethink the way traditional CRM is sought to resolve those most common dealership operation problems? Like what, what about it stands out and, that our listeners should be aware of? Um, in, in car dealerships, there's three main technology uh, resources. One, it's digital marketing, as we all know, websites and, and digital right. marketing. There's CRM, which is the customer experience, communicating the customer. Um, and then there's transactional and asset management, which is called dealer management systems. The unfortunate thing is a dealer management systems that are typically started as the accounting systems in a car dealership that work as like when you go to the repair order and you, you walk in a, a service and they have you sign a repair order, uh, they'll do transactional. Um, then they evolved into doing the paperwork on, for F&I uh, for finance. And so uh, you go through the paperwork and F&I, that's invoicing. Um, then they, these DMS companies wanted to become CRM companies or wanted to become uh, digital marketing companies. Well, unfortunately, uh, it's, that's a, a hub and spoke business model that doesn't work. Um, the hub and spoke is basically that all the data is being uh, uh, harnessed inside of the DMS and you're trying to build a digital marketing experience or you're trying to build a CRM experience around how that data is being housed. Well, unfortunately, it's not a hub and spoke model. It's a triangle model. Digital marketing needs to stand in its own two feet triggered by events within the CRM. CRM needs to be all the communication of the customer that is going back and forth. And then when it segues over to the transactional and asset management, you got to let each lane do what they do great and, and, and don't and allow the data to exchange cleanly. Because when a CRM company tries to be a DMS or tries to be a, a digital marketing company or a DMS company tries to be a CRM or a digital marketing company, it just messes everything up. The data gets all screwed up. So what we try to do is we try to allow a CRM company to do what it's supposed to do. And then it triggers the events for digital marketing. And then it actually gives all the data to the transactional piece in the F&I department or the service department. So the customer can have a clean service experience or an F&I experience. And then lastly, it allows the DMS to manage the asset once it gets to invoicing and it comes into uh, the dealership as, a, as profit. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I appreciate you walking us through all that. Uh, I mean, to me, that was pretty informational about how all of that works. So uh, you yourself, as you've said, have a lot of experience. Uh, you uh, are an owner of a longstanding automotive dealership yourself. yourself. So what have been some of the, you know, let's go a little bit more macro here. What have been some of the greatest hurdles that your company's growth over the years and how have you dealt with them? Well, the recession was the biggest thing. And so uh -huh. um, we were repeating, I'd like to say groundhogs, repeating the same day over and over again. Yes. Yes. About 2007 from 1985 to 2007, every day in the car business was the same day repeated. It was not like we were evolving at all. And so when the, when we crashed, um, we had to acknowledge again that digital is the direction that things are going to go. And so uh, at that point in time, we realized that we need to evolve from 
um, really plaguing on people's ignorances. And I can say that because people didn't know what their car was worth. They didn't know what a, a, a vehicle should be sold for. They didn't know what financing was all about. And so um, instead of playing on the ignorance, we need to go ahead and just be transparent. And so when we transition through that, we realized that efficiencies, um, first of all, profit monitors started to go down um, you, quite a bit, actually. And so you had to get more to volume. And as you got more to volume, you had uh, a bunch of people entering the space, such as CarMaxes and uh, Carvanas of the world. And as they entered that space, there was less and less margin in our vehicles. And so we had to become more efficient. Well, how do you become more efficient? You become more efficient with the opportunity you have available to you. The only way you're gonna do that is by getting into a digital world in which you gather that data and communicate to the customers they want to, uh, the way they wanna be communicated to and creating a good product for them. And so as we've evolved with the car business post-recession, we realized how important CRM was and how important applied digital marketing is. And now it's evolved to the next level, which is <laughs> really allowing, we got deep involved in the technology business, but allowing the small dealer to participate in the way that consumers want to be communicated to, because unfortunately they were hurt. It was too expensive for them to do it. And so we've created a technology based on our experience that one gives the consumer a better experience too, allows the dealership to manage their dealership better and be aware, be hyper aware of the consumer's experience. And then three is able to evolve the, and communicate to that customers the way they want to be communicated to. Yeah. So happily, I think to a certain degree, we've seen some of that evolution over the years. Earlier in our conversation, we mentioned the horror stories. And now when we think of the industry today, we don't necessarily think of those same horror stories the way we used to, because at least I can attest to myself, those are old stories. My new stories are a lot different. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. And, what's, uh, and, what, and what was really revelational to me just in the very beginning of our conversation is how many people really will buy a vehicle sight unseen. I just don't have a framework. That's why, <laughs> that's why I said, that's why I said there is no way in hell I'm not I'm buying a vehicle that I haven't driven because I, I, I just don't understand that. I don't either. And, and I, I, and I may never understand it. Exactly. I don't either. And, and there's a lot of people doing it every day and there's a whole business models that are being built every day for that particular model. But at the same note, you can't forget the people that don't want that model. The people like you, the people like me, they still want to come in a car store. And so if you've talked to them, you're still going to gather the data sitting on your couch at home while you're watching football. You still want to have relevant data or information and communication with the person that's looking at that vehicle, that uh, the Mazda 6 that you're the new one that you're looking at. Then when you come in, you want to know that you feel like at least somebody already knows what ahead of time, why you're coming in, the vehicle you're looking for, and the right specialist is going to show it to you. And so you feel like it's a little bit better experience than just driving in the dealership. And so again, as time goes on, I think that you're going to find that transparency is the only way that car business will survive. And the utilization of technology and communicating to customers the way they want to be communicated is the only way that uh, that we're going to go and evolve to to cater to all types of customers that are coming in our stores. Yeah. See, I miss part of the evolution of this. Uh, 
I bought my Saturn um, LS2 in the year 2001. It was a 2001 model. It was brand new. It was actually a dealer demo. Uh, I got that vehicle. I chose it because one of my good friends was a salesman at the Saturn dealership. So I, I, I drove the car. I liked it because uh, I wasn't going to buy it just because it was my buddy selling it. I actually liked the vehicle. And I kept that car for 10 years. Put over 120,000 miles on it. Uh, had the transmission rebuilt. But another way of looking at that is you have basically a brand new transmission. The problem was is the Dag Nagin, Dag Nabin rather. And it was a nagging thing. Dag Nabin air conditioning kept breaking. I had the whole system replaced and it kept breaking. How many summers was I going to go without air conditioning? Wasn't happening. Right. So in the year 2001, of course I had a great experience. It was my buddy. Right. And Saturn had a, they had a one, one price store at the time and their whole yeah. business model was based on uh, transparency and customer service. And so right. they were the innovators of that one price system. So so I got to the point where I wasn't sitting through this for another summer. I mean, yeah, I like the payment on the Saturn. Zero. I love that payment, but I'm not doing this. And plus, after 10 years, is it time to change up just for the sake of doing so? I mean, at least in the eyes of many. So I went to a Buick dealership because I'd heard about these new Opal Insignias. I mean, Buick Regals. And met with the sales associate. And one of the first things he did is he pulled out his numbers and he showed them to me. He said, look, this is where this is. Uh, this is a number that you're looking for to lease a vehicle because he told me you want to lease. Uh, this is my margin. This is my commission. This is the overhead. So I'm just letting you know I'm making a fair deal here. I'm being totally transparent with the numbers. And that blew my mind. Right. Because I did not have a framework for understanding that a sales associate might actually just show me the numbers and tell me, hey, yeah, I'm making some money off this, but here you see how much. Well, and as evolution keeps happening, the only way that dealerships are going to maintain themselves is by becoming more efficient. And when I say more efficient, instead of the tiered management where you have salespeople, ASMs, assistant sales managers, finance people, sales managers, new car manager, used car manager, sale or general sales uh, manager, all these different, in a pear tree. <laughs> holy smokes. <laughs> It goes down, I like to say, from an 11-person football team down to a five-person basketball team. And as you've seen uh, basketball evolve over the years, it's everybody can be a, a – there's no – a big man can shoot, the guard can drive. They're, they all can do different things. They spend more time. They're just way more efficient um, with a fewer number of players. And they're able now to communicate to more customers with technology. And so as time goes on, you're going to see fewer and fewer uh, – uh, salespeople and sales managers in stores because they're able to do their job way more efficient by utilizing technology. Yeah. So is this to the point where you're going to have uh, sales associates working from home? It's kind of crazy because that's already happening. And okay. because of the fact that our, our system downloads to your phone and so a lead just goes directly to your phone, uh, that same you, you, you're sitting there watching the game, chances are the sales guy is going to be sitting watching the same game at home. And he's able to communicate to you, give you all the data that you need, answer all of your questions, probably even send you videos of the vehicle because he already has some pre-recorded videos. And he's able to give you all the data you need um, when you would never expect it. 
And so you're right. You're going to be able to have a guy at home <laughs> selling those cars rather than, and again, selling the experience of coming in and looking at it, hopefully. But uh, there are some people that are willing to go and just have it delivered to their drive driveway. So Yeah, and what I, what I mean by that is actually work from home, not have to report to the dealership 50 hours a week and then sacrifice all their free time to being perpetually available. But I mean, actually, their office is their home and they have the flexibility that, Hey, if today's a slow day, I'll play golf. Uh, if I'm watching the game and uh, somebody texts me while I'm watching the game and they're a lead, well, hell, um, okay, so the information you want in your Mazda 6 Touring Edition, touchdown! Right, isn't that is, crazy? Uh, and here's a, here's a video I filmed. Uh, I think you'll really appreciate the innovations with the field goal! Right. Well, and it, that's full circle for what we're talking about, because that's exactly how independent stores do it currently. The owner of the store is the salesperson, is the finance person. Right. If a lead comes over, he could be at the auction at that time. He could be on a golf course. But that guy knows how important that lead is. So he is getting back with you and he's communicating to you. So, again, I'd like to say that these independents, the smaller stores are almost more advanced than the um, – than the uh, uh, franchise stores in in action and in actual uh, labor time. And now you just got to give them the tools, give them the technology tools. And that's really what we're after. Absolutely. So here's, uh, I, I alluded to this earlier, and uh, I know we've gone through most of the things you want to cover, but I really want to get into this just a little bit. I mentioned earlier that Back when I started buying cars 25 years ago, picking up a three-year-old car or a five-year-old car, basically, you're buying somebody else's problem. Uh, these days, a three-year-old vehicle is just barely broken in. So in your experience, because you're actually inside the industry, what has the impact has this had on the used car industry, which is what a lot of these independent dealerships work with, uh, or we call it pre-owned, because vehicles just last longer there's two things that i can share with you one um, cars do last longer and a used car is absolute value today the other thing that you're going to find is those that you use car value let's just talk about its residual value because that's what a three-year-old car has is whatever values left the residual value of that vehicle are so high today that really it's so crazy because in some cases the new car deal is a better deal than a used car deal because there's it's it's such a great used car and so as time goes on you're going to start seeing some crazy starts uh, stuff start happening with used car leasing um you're going to start seeing the fact that because cars hold their value and they have such a longer life that there's going to be new ways that people can finance their cars where it makes sense to buy a three-year-old used car because the gap between a new and a used one isn't that high, but they're going to be able to make it available to you as a used car as far as what your monthly outgo is going to be. It, it makes more sense as a used car because their values are so high and they do last so long. Yeah, I was just, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, so because, you know, we keep producing all these cars and they keep lasting longer. I mean, do we eventually just have too many cars and it's just not even worth it to make them anymore i mean yeah I, I i understand evolution of technology and all that i know i was being facetious with the idea would stop making cars but another way of putting that is are we going to get such a glut of available good cars it's so funny is that's what everyone thinks and it has yet to happen and what the pandemic just proved to us 
is if you shut off those card uh, manufacturers for three months, it creates a void in the marketplace where we've spent five months catching it back up and we still haven't caught back up. Yeah. And so I, as yet to say, we have overbuilt or cars are too long. And I also believe that consumers' life changes. As long as people's lifestyles change, their credit situations change, their job situations change, where they live changes. Um, I believe that there's always going to be a trade cycle with any type of transportation need. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly something uh, because when I got my, 1988 Camaro in 1994 it had 71,000 miles it had a little bit of damage to the fender and it was a you know the, the owner probably raced the living hell out of it uh candidly uh now if, if if this were the year 2020 and I was looking at a 2014 Camaro the odds are very high unless the person just brutalized the vehicle that 2014 Camaro is still basically a new car without question yeah, um, cars, they make a much better car today than they have in the past. And um, uh, again, consumer need is what drives obviously the industry and recycling those cars um, basically from one consumer to the next consumer to the next is what creates a used car industry. And really, it's been robust. It's really not good. It's not shrinking. It's actually um, staying flat, if not increasing. That is, you know, that's all very, that's all very interesting. So the point being is, uh, while we think there may be so many cars on the market, you know, just available in the marketplace, that we're eventually going to have a glut of cars. What I heard from you is that uh, the our lack of preparedness for how to deal with shutdowns that led to temporary s- suspensions of production of vehicles actually caused a shortage. Exactly right. Now, can some of that be attributed to the fact that some of the things that you've mentioned that could be coming along the pike, like the ability to lease a used vehicle, just haven't quite entered the lexicon yet or something that haven't really gained traction or people even understand exists? The number one thing that motivates a customer is buying the most car they possibly can for the least amount of monthly payment. That's me. And so um, as time goes on, if I can lease a used, let's call it F-150 for $350 a month, and that's an equivalent payment to buying a brand new, uh, let's call Mazda 6, I'm probably going to lease the F-150 because that's really what I want. I just can't afford a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would le- I would lease a used vehicle. If something that was three years old, I would lease that vehicle. I, I'd have a Carfax done on it. I might have it inspected to make sure that there's no secret frame damage. It's been covered up by a really good panel job. But outside of that, I'd trust it. Exactly right. And so there's going to be all kinds of, and again, you've got other disruptors that are going to be coming out like uh uh, ride share or sharing vehicles. There's going to be a prepaid lease and maintenance on vehicles. Uh, Volvo's already doing it. Porsche's already doing it where you just flat dollar amount, you use the car. And as long as you want to use it, you take it back, get a new one. And as long as you keep making your monthly payment, you're buying a subscription to a car, just like you would uh, Cirrus. And so um, it's, there's all kinds of different ways that are going to be really unique uh, for to get people into cars, it's just going to keep the the transition of people trading their cars out on a regular basis, and that's what's going to feed the need for the a number of cars that are available in the marketplace. Well, look what we have. I mean, we have uh, home ownership is going way down because people see the like like myself. I'm thinking about getting a house, 
uh, for myself, but I'm not thinking of buying a house just so that I can have a house. I'm thinking about a specific type of situation where it would be out in a remote area and I'd have land with water running underneath it. And it would be a building, it would be a house that I construct, not one that I buy based on somebody's template in accordance with my needs and wants. Um, exactly. I don't need a house. Uh, exactly. I need a place to live. So as far as my needs, my apartment could so, could continue to serve that for the rest of my life. Up until the COVID thing happened, it never occurred to me that I would ever want to buy a house. The only reason I want to buy a house is because I'm sick and tired of swimming pools being closed because people can't get their act <laughs> together on basic sanitary procedures for a damn swimming pool. Right. And so, again, so, goes- so, so, so if I can't count on the community to provide me one, well, then I'm going to get my own place and I'll just go up there when I want to swim. Or I just well, want to get and away it comes from the down world. to um, what, what do you want? How do you want to live for how much can you pay a month? And if you can get more environment and an individual pool or a better environment for yourself based on the same monthly outgo, you'd definitely consider it. And that's all yeah, that's happening. And uh, I think that's as our new consumer has entered the marketplace in this place. It's all about how much monthly is it going to cost me? That's why all these subscription-based TV, subscription-based everything you could ever imagine is subscription-based. I mean, you have these Nest cameras now, or these, what are they called? Ring cameras. Yeah. And um, sure, it's security, but then you're making a monthly payment for them to record your data. And so exactly. everything becomes subscription-based, and then you justify how much you're willing to pay for that luxury. And I think that's the way our, our future is going to be, is how much space do we have for the type of uh, experience we want in our lifestyle, and we're going to pay for it monthly. And we yeah. want to get the best we can for the least amount. Yeah, actually, um, you know, because we do have to wrap up here, we're at the top of the hour. You went exactly where I wanted you to go, uh, to uh, where I wanted this to end up, which is to illustrate that thing about buying behavior. It's to the point where people lease their furniture and lease their television rather than buy it because they know that when they want a new one, they can just send it back. Exactly right. Whereas if, whereas if you bought the couch, you're stuck with it. If you exactly. bought the TV, you're stuck with it. Um, somebody can recycle it. They can send it to a down market. There's 20 things. I mean, that couch, they can just put some new padding in it, uh, do a forensic clean on it, and sell it as new, basically, or as pre-owned. That didn't exist some time ago, but it exists now, and people are biting down on it. Right. It's uh, it's into uh, luxury travel. It's in the every every industry that's out there right now. I mean, I think you could lease a Rolex at this point in time, yeah. so... I think we're at the, that may be the case. I may look into it. So uh, as we wrap up here, I'm going to think we have about a minute and a half here, and I want to give about 30 seconds. Just tell us a little bit where you know somebody who's uh, in the perhaps in the automotive industry and wants to discover more about your system, how they go about that, and what they have to look forward to discover to when they take that step. Well, I think that uh, the best way to look at us is dealerpeak.com. It's D-E-A-L-E-R-P-E-A-K.com um, or cardog.com. We have a, our product for independence is called Cardog um, because uh, it's a slang for old school car dogs or the independent guys. I got you. And so we have cardog.com and dealerpeak.com. And and yeah, just it's, it's got so much information. And if you're interested in something, just submit a lead. And if it's interested in having a conversation with me, say, I want to talk to Matt Moore because <laughs> someone right. will find me. Okay, so real simple, um, dealerpeak.com, and then there's also cardog.com. So uh, I just got to say, Matt Moore, thank you so much for being with us today. I know it's a very unique topic for us, and this might have been a little bit of a different approach to some of your other interviews, but this has been a lot of fun, and it's been a heck of an education. Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate your time. 
All right. And for everybody listening, uh, we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Also, check out our previous and our upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Till next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>